The Choosing Wisely campaign, sponsored by the American Board of Internal Medicine Foundation, has been engaging physicians and their specialty societies in identifying overuse of common medical services. But some specialties lists seem much more likely than others to make a difference. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Nancy Morden, an Associate Professor at the Dartmouth Institute for Health Policy and Clinical Practice and at the Geisel School of Medicine at Dartmouth. Dr. Morden has co-authored a perspective article on the politics and economics of labeling low-value services. Dr. Morden, to what extent is the goal of the Choosing Wisely campaign to improve care, and to what extent is the goal to reduce health care spending? It's a good question, and we reviewed the campaign material carefully when we were working on the analysis that we would present in this study. They mention in the campaign literature specifically both of those goals, improving quality, but also they repeatedly mention in the campaign literature the vision that physicians will become responsible stewards of limited health care dollars. And so I believe it's, it's twofold, and, and you're right to call out the difference between the two. Sometimes we can improve quality, and that may increase costs or be cost-neutral. But there are many examples in the literature when we can improve quality and also reduce healthcare spending. And I think that's the vision of the campaign overall. You note in your article that, for instance, orthopedic surgeons and head and neck surgeons don't list any of the procedures that they themselves perform as overused, even though there's clear evidence of overuse in some of those cases. So do you know how these specialty societies came up with their lists and what kind of politics was at play? I don't know what the politics are. The process for creating the list is on the Choosing Wisely website. Each society sort of names their process and names the participants. I don't know what political decisions went into the nomination of committee members who actually generated the list. I also don't know specifically what their processes were for determining which items made the list and which items did not make the list. In this article, we very specifically analyzed the outcome what was ultimately listed by the individual societies. But it's a good question and an appropriate one to think through how the societies came to these specific list items. And that would lead forward into ways that we might improve selection in the cases where we think they might not fully hit the stewardship target. So how, in fact, would you persuade them to go about reconsidering their lists? Well, I think it really boils down to the purpose of the campaign and the willingness to embrace the challenge of meaningfully serving as stewards of limited health care dollars. This is an, an incredibly important start. We've got doctors sitting at the table discussing how they might identify low-value care. The hope is that then they would reduce the use of the low-value services. In the article, we talk about a few distinct ways that we might encourage societies to dig a little deeper and develop bolder lists that might even affect their own services and their own revenue streams. Some of the ways we could do that would be to help them. We could work with payers and score proposed items based on the volume of those services provided and the cost of those services provided so that we could understand the impact as the lists are being generated. I think they would only respond to that by proposing higher impact items if they had truly embraced the campaign mission of reducing low-value care and were willing to accept the potential financial implications of that. And how do you get societies to embrace that? I'm not sure. That, I think, is the challenge, and that's what the ABIM Foundation is striving to achieve. But I think the lists show us that we've got a long way to go, at least for most of the societies that are participating now. 
On the more positive side, many specialty societies listed imaging and laboratory tests as overused, including the Radiology Society and the Clinical Pathology Society. So that's one place where there seems to be a strong consensus. In a situation like that, what do you think the next steps are to reduce the use of the items on those lists? We propose a few paths that we could take as a group of physicians to translate the list of low-value services into actual practice change, and that's what is needed if the campaign is going to be meaningful and have an impact on healthcare spending. We've proposed that the consumer information and consumer education effort be intense and sustained because I think it's one of the most important things we can do is make sure that consumers know what is being called by physician groups as low value and then they themselves can be part of the effort to change the culture because it's a two-part culture. It's physicians and patients, of course, in the care dyad. The other proposals that we make were, as we said, scoring these the physicians might understand the real impact of those. And if we understand that some of those images are incredibly common and costly, we could really focus our physician education efforts on those specific imaging services. I would like to see payers figure out how to translate these into incentives. I think the best way to move practice is to link it tightly to incentives. And if payers can do that cautiously and precisely, I think it's going to be our most effective lever to actually change practice with respect to ordering these lab tests and ordering the imaging tests that have been labeled by physician groups as low value. So there should be little controversy over their value if you can precisely identify the population and the test. You say in your article that the Choosing Wisely lists weren't meant to inform cost containment efforts or quality measures, but that they will probably be used for those purposes. If that's the case, shouldn't that wait until all of the top five lists are equally reasonable and appropriate, rather than what may be the current situation where some of the lists are more self-serving than others? You're right. The campaign wasn't intended to inform payment policies or even formal quality metrics. We could wait until all societies have equal impact lists. I think you raised in your earlier question the real challenge of getting societies to step up with bolder lists that might impact their own revenue. I don't think that waiting is necessarily the right step, though I agree with you. Societies who were willing to produce bold lists, like the American Gastroenterologist Society, would be disproportionately negatively impacted if the measures were converted quickly into payment policies by payers. That said, I don't think that we should wait to translate these into payment policies and quality measures because I think that that's really what's going to move practice change. And I imagine that the payers might be able to come up with a clever strategy for rewarding societies who bring meaningful services to their lists, um, such that they're not penalized as disproportionately because they were actually willing to list their own services. It would be some complex policy development, but I think waiting is not the right answer. If we wait for all the societies to have equal lists, we may never see this implemented in a meaningful way. In regard to the concern about loss of income, it's one interesting item. On the list of the Society of General Internal Medicine, the annual physical is considered to be low value. Might the recognition of that lead not so much to a loss of income among primary care physicians as to the possibility that, that PCPs would be able to see more patients, more of the newly insured patients looking for access? Certainly a possibility in areas where demand outpaces supply. It's a very good point that you make. If we 
we're able to, and the unwarranted annual physicals, those that are not necessary, that are routine, and instead use that time so that the primary care physicians could see new patients. You're exactly right. It wouldn't change their revenue, and it would be a better service to the population in their regions. The financial impact on the physicians would come directly from the relationship between the supply and demand in their area. If there were pent-up demand, those new annual physical spots would get filled. If there were not a pent-up demand in their region, the new annual physicals wouldn't fill the annual physicals that they stopped doing on their established patients. I think the other impact for primary care physicians is that new patients are a little harder work, and so the work would be different even if the volume were the same. Seeing someone you know well every year is decidedly less work than seeing someone you don't know taking in a new patient and assuming the responsibility for their care. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. Finally, I want to go back to an issue you raised, that of consumers or patients and their involvement in this system. Clearly, patient education is important so that their expectations will be aligned with the evolving understanding of overuse. How do you see that effort beginning? Well, the Choosing Wisely Consumer Reports or Consumer Partners that is led by Consumer Reports and now many other consumer groups is, I think, an appropriate way to start the consumer education. I'm impressed by the consumer education materials available on the Choosing Wisely website that include paper materials that physicians can offer to their patients. It also includes videos that help educate patients as well as physicians. I think that's the right place to start by providing the materials needed so that the physicians don't have to develop the materials themselves, don't have to work very hard to understand the Choosing Wise campaign and which population is specifically targeted by which list. I think the easier we can make this for physicians, the better, and the more accessible we can make understanding the list to patients, the more successful the campaign will be. I'm very impressed with the consumer education component of this so far in terms of what they've developed. What I don't know enough about yet is how successfully they've managed to get this in the hands of patients and how many patients are reading and considering it seriously. There was an impressive lay press splash when the Choosing Wisely list originally came out. I think that that may have helped some, but I think the most important thing we could do is continue to sustain the consumer education effort so the patients come to doctors with questions about just as is envisioned, they come to the doctors with questions about the value of the tests being ordered and the procedures being done. Thank you, Dr. Morden.